Good morning. All right, there we go. Great, great. I want to introduce Brian to y'all. Brian, come on up. Um, as y'all know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago um, and last week that we're doing a pulpit swap with other pastors here in town. And so Brian is the pastor at Missio Day, and we have known each other since like 2007, 2008. It's been a, a minute. Um, and what's fun is uh, Brian, uh, they, they had just started Missio, and on the side, he was doing graphic design work. So this man designed our first uh, Fellowship Asheville website and our very first logo before we ever started. That's how far back we go. And it has been uh, fun to not only call Brian a, a friend, but also a collaborator in Christ as we have worked together uh, shoulder to shoulder in many ways, uh, helping church plants get started here in Asheville and, and seeing what God's doing here in Asheville. So it's be fun. So Brian, let me pray for you and, um, uh, and then you can have at it. All right. Jesus, um, thank you for this man standing right beside me and, and for his family and for his church and, and, and what you are doing in and through him. And God, I pray for us today uh, that we will have receptive hearts to, to the words that you have given him for us. I pray that you would uh, use your Holy Spirit to, to enlighten the scriptures to us, uh, Father, and that we would all leave this place different than we walked in because of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to be with you. Uh, I bring you greetings from Missio Day. Uh, if you don't know about Missio, uh, we planted in 07, as Fred said. Uh, Missio Day just means the mission of or the sending of God. And uh, really thankful for Fred, for his friendship. Oftentimes, pastoring uh, can be lonely. And uh, I think we've got a bond that is unique, and uh, I enjoy his friendship. And, and I'm, I know as, as long as both of us are still pastoring in this city, neither of us uh, are alone. And so I'm grateful for that. I know that he loves you deeply. Uh, and another thing that, that we share in common is that love for church planters and pastors. And so uh, as Fred kind of alluded to, we, we host uh, this thing on the third Thursday of most months that we creatively titled Third Thursday. And uh, it's a gathering for church planters and pastors so that we can network with them and encourage them and help them to succeed because we know it's going to take all of our churches uh, partnering together to reach the city of Asheville and beyond. Amen? All right. Well, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. It's where we will be this morning. You probably know that Advent means arrival. And um, in, in this season of Advent, what we're doing is, is we're slowing down. And we are contemplating and commemorating the first coming of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And we're also looking forward to the second arrival or the second coming of Christ when he will make all things new. And so we're, we're looking in this series uh, at these different songs, these poetic expressions of worship that are found in Luke's gospel. And, and I think Fred said this last week, but they are out of order, uh, but so is all of 2020, right? And so uh, it's fine. Like, it's just fine. So we're fast-forwarding today from Mary's song all the way to after Jesus is already born, all right? So just bear with me. We're not there yet, you know, historically, but, but we are in today's uh, sermon. So this story I love, and it's actually one of the lesser known of the sort of Christmas stories. We know about the shepherds, right? We know about the angels. We know about Mary and Joseph and little eight-pound golden fleece diaper Jesus. We know about all that stuff, but we don't know a lot about this man, Simeon. But I think his story is actually one of the most profound Christmas stories that are in our scripture. And so uh, I'm going to read for us. Now, here's at my church, 
What I like to do is read the entire passage that we're going to be in, and then I say, this is God's word, and then the congregation responds, thanks be to God. Have we tried that? Okay? Because here's the deal. If I bomb the sermon, at least you heard the word of God. (laughs) So Luke chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 21, and I'll read to uh, 35 or so. Uh, and then, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you the command and, or the uh, instruction and you can respond. So it says this. At the end of eight days, when he, that's Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who, who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Hey, good job. I like that. All right. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to gather with your people under the authority of your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me and empower me to preach this word, to give your people something that they can hold on to, that they will see Jesus in a new light, that they will cling to him with a, a deeper faith, and that some perhaps even today would cross the threshold from unbelief into belief. Help us now. We ask in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. Now, I want to just set the historical context here and give you a few um, uh, pieces that will help make sense of what's going on here. We see in verse 21, for, for instance, that it was eight days after his birth, he was presented in the temple for circumcision. This is according to the law, according to Leviticus chapter 12. And then they gave him a name. Now, this name was given by the angels uh, and then they presented him, and then they gave him this name, Jesus, or in Hebrew, Yeshua, which means God's saves, God's salvation. Now we're back at the temple, verse 22 and following, and there are two different ceremonies that are happening that are also prescribed by the law. We have consecration, which essentially is in Exodus chapter 13, the scriptures say that, that the firstborn child of any family is to be consecrated to the Lord, meaning it's this reference back to the book of Exodus when God rescued his people. You remember they paint the doorposts of the homes and the judgment passes over. And all the firstborn sons in homes that were not marked by the blood of the lamb, they, they died. 
but God saved the rest. And so to commemorate that, the firstborn child in a family would be consecrated or dedicated or set apart to the Lord. So that's happening. But then also in in Leviticus 12, there are purification rites. So after a woman gave birth, she was considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean for up to 66 days if she had a daughter, 33 days if she had a son. So here's Jesus. He's already been circumcised. That's eight days. And then another 33 days. So we're looking at 40, 41 days here. If I'm, I went to Oakley, so I mean, I think I got my math right. And then they're here to do this, to, to present this child. Now the temple was the center of life and worship for a good Jew. It is the place where God's presence was said to dwell. So regardless of where you lived, regardless of how far away from the temple you lived, if you were going to be a good Jew, you would come to the temple if you were gonna meet with God. So the temple was where you would meet with God. The temple was where you would go to have your sin atoned for. So there are all these ceremonies in the Old Testament about coming and and bringing atonement, bringing sacrifices to atone for your sins. And this is what uh, the temple kind of represented. So I want you to, if you're a note taker, this is my first point. I want you to see here the joyful sacrifice of Mary and Joseph, the, the parents of Jesus. Here they come, bringing their infant son to the temple. And I want you to see what a huge but joyful sacrifice this is. See, Jesus is of Nazareth, right? But he was born in Bethlehem, which is about 80 miles apart. So if you know the story in the early part of Luke's gospel, they had to travel from Beth, I mean, from Nazareth down to Bethlehem because that was the city that Joseph's family was from. And they were taking a census. And so they needed to be back in their hometown for the census. And so they traveled that 80 miles all the way to Bethlehem. And then Jesus was born there. Now you could travel about 20 miles a day on average but if you've ever traveled with a pregnant lady, you know you got to double your time, right? Because they got to get off that camel about every 30 minutes to use the restroom. So, so this is a huge journey they've taken. Now they either have to go back home, which is another 80 miles, and then come back 65 miles to Jerusalem again to do these ceremonies, or they have to stay in Bethlehem. If they stay in Bethlehem, that's almost two months away from home. That's a huge sacrifice, right? just to do what God had commanded them to do by offering up this child and a sacrifice for him. This is not easy for them. In fact, we know from the text too that they're very poor. How do we know that? What is the offering that they brought? Look back at your text. What did they bring as an offering? Two what? Birds, two turtle doves, right? The requirement, the sacrifice that's actually required in the law was a lamb, But there's a caveat, there's a provision in that law that says if you cannot afford a lamb, then you can bring these two turtle doves. So here are Mary and Joseph, at least she's a teenager, they're probably very young parents, very poor, traveling all this way, away from home, and yet the text tells us four times that they did according to the law. They did everything according to the law of the Lord. In other words, Joseph and Mary did what God required. They did what God wanted. They did what God commanded because they love him. Because they love him. I wonder about us. Like there are some of us who are very obedient to the Lord. We do what he wants. We do what he requires. We do what he asks. 
But if someone wants to look into our heart and know the motive of our heart, it's only so we think God will bless us. It's only so we think God will do good things for us or we'll have a good life. And there's no place in the Bible where that works. You can be the most obedient. Think Jesus was the most obedient to the law of God. And what happened? He died. It did not go well for him. And then others of us, we say that we love God. We don't do what he says. We don't obey him. We don't follow his word. We just sort of shrug it off and go, ah, you know, he loves me. It's fine. But Jesus tells us in John 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Do we love him? Do we do what he says? So a joyful sacrifice. The second thing I want you to see here is a, is a hopeful longing. And if I, if I had to put a title on today's message, that's what it would be. A hopeful longing. Now this is Simeon's story. So let's learn about Simeon here. Look back at verse 25 with me. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Let's just stop right there for a minute. So Simeon's this old man. He is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. So we don't know a thing about him other than his name. And we know that he is at the temple all the time. Now some people have assumed that Simeon was a priest because he's at the temple all the time. But the Bible never says that. But we do learn four things about Simeon that are here in the text. First of all, it says he was righteous. He was righteous. Now that doesn't mean he was perfect. He was pure in heart. Simeon understood what Abraham understood. That you're righteous by faith. You remember that? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God. He trusted in God. He had faith in God and his promises and he was righteous. Secondly, he was devout, which means he was faithful. He did what God wanted. He obeyed. He worshiped. He would, he would follow God's law. He was a devout man. He was a righteous man. Thirdly, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is a unique phrase, not used anywhere else in the Bible. Consolation means like comfort, you know? And if you think about it, God's people had been, they had suffered for a long, long, long time under the hands of the Egyptians under the hands of the Babylonians and the Persians, under the hand of the Greeks, and now under the hand of the Romans. And there were people who were longing, who were waiting, who were trusting in God's promises to his people. And, and Simeon is one of those guys who had been trusting in, hoping in, longing in God's promises for his entire life. And now he's an old man. Like he believed the promise that was given to Abraham. That I will bless you and you, your family line will become a blessing to the nations. Remember that from Genesis chapter 12. He believed the promise that, that Moses gave under the inspiration of the Spirit. That one greater than Moses would come. Speaking of, the, of a prophet, of, of a Messiah, a Savior who would come. Uh, that's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He believed the promise that David gave. That there would be one who would come who would sit on the throne of David who would rule forever. That's First uh, Kings chapter 9. And I believe, now this, let me just step away from the revelation of the, of the word of God. This is my opinion, okay? I believe that Simeon was a student of the book of Isaiah. Because a lot of what, Isaiah, a lot of what Simeon says here is, is 
maybe not quotes from Isaiah, but, but almost direct references. And I'm so thankful that we read from Isaiah 40 uh, in our opening uh, worship here because it's so tied to this. In Isaiah 40, verse 1, God says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, God promised it. And so now, there were many in the New Testament who had a similar longing. We meet Anna a little bit later. We won't get to it today. But in Luke chapter 2, you meet this older woman, Anna, who is longing, hoping for the redemption of Jerusalem. At the end of Luke's gospel, we see uh, um, Joseph of Arimathea, this, this wealthy man who gives up his uh, gravesite so that Jesus can be buried. And, and it says that, that Joseph of Arimathea was looking for the kingdom of God. Even Jesus' own disciples, uh, they say, will you at this time restore the kingdom, right? They, they had this expectation, this hopeful longing. Now, the fourth thing that we see about Simeon is that the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. This is before Pentecost. If if you know the story in Acts chapter 2, the believers, the Holy Spirit fell on all believers at that time. And and we know from the book of Ephesians uh, and other places that we are indwelt with. If you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus, you are indwelt with the Spirit of God. This is before that. And so the, the visitation of the Holy Spirit on people was unique and, uh, and it was not permanent. But it tells us that, that Simeon, the Holy Spirit, was upon him. Meaning that the Spirit was leading him. The Spirit was guiding him. The Spirit was speaking to him. The Spirit was giving him revelation. In fact, we learn in the text that, that Simeon was told by the Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. So the Spirit of God had given Simeon a unique promise. You will not die until you see this promise fulfilled. I don't know about you, but even now, like I I grant that we are all indwelt with the Spirit. But doesn't it feel rare, even in your life now, to, to have the Spirit tell you things, reveal things to you. There's probably only been three or four times in my life where I am so, like, you are so sure that it's the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you, telling you something. And even then, you're like 70% sure, right? You're like 30, maybe I'm crazy, or maybe it's the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen all that often. But when it does, you just know. You just know. So here is Simeon, led by the Spirit, The Spirit gives him this promise. You won't die until you see the Messiah. And so he's got anticipation. Now there's a difference between this kind of anticipation and the fulfillment or the the arrival of what you expect, right? So many of you, I know kids, if you're thinking about this thing you want for Christmas, you know, you have this joyful expectation, this longing and, and, and it's even up to Christmas Eve, you're just like giddy and nervous and you're not sure, am I going to get it, not going to get it. And then there's a difference between that and Christmas morning when you get to rip into the thing and the promise is fulfilled, yeah? Now, Simeon's an old man. So he's like, okay, God, you've given me this promise, but when am I going to see it? Like, I'm almost dead, okay? Like, it's got to happen sometime soon. It's, it, 
And so here he is. Just picture this with me. Simeon is in the temple. He is worshiping. He's praying. He's waiting. He's listening. He's watching. And then at the back of the room, he sees him. This poor young couple coming in with this little infant. Now, Simeon had probably seen dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of babies dedicated at the temple in his lifetime. But this one's different. He knows. He knows. That's the one. That's the one. And so he, he kind of makes his way through the crowd to this couple. Hey, can I, can I hold your little baby? Okay. And they give him the baby and he holds the baby. He says, now I can die. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, this is why we have church security. Okay. Like, you might die, but you're not holding that baby. Right. We're not going to let you get there. It's weird, right? It's weird, but it's also very profound. Let's actually look at what the text tells us. So he's holding the baby, verse 28. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, the the New Testament is written in Greek. But Simeon was a Jew, and he's in the temple in Jerusalem, which means he's speaking what language? That's right, Hebrew. He's speaking Hebrew. And so when he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, you know what he's actually saying? Literally, he's saying, my eyes have seen your Yeshua, which means God saves. He doesn't even know this little baby's name. But he says, my eyes have seen your Yeshua, your salvation, God's salvation. It's crazy. My eyes have seen your salvation, your Yeshua, your Jesus, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is profound. He is, uh, he's essentially saying, you've kept your promises, God. I've gotten to see Yeshua, this salvation with my own eyes, a light to the Gentiles, glory to Israel. This is actually a reference. Again, this is why I think he was a scholar or at least knew a lot about the book of Isaiah. Uh, In Isaiah 49, let me just read you a couple verses here. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, it says this. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Now listen, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Speaking of the the Messiah here. Then in verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Listen, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. He, he has brought consolation. This is, what, this is what Simeon is rejoicing in. Now again, where are they? In the temple, right? There's a prophecy in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament before we get into the new. And in chapter three of Malachi, it says this, the Lord will come suddenly into his temple. So here's Simeon 
holding this infant who is God incarnate. And Simeon knows it. He know, the Lord has come suddenly into his temple and I'm holding him in my hands. <laughs> this is the consolation that Simeon longed for. Uh, one scholar put it this way. Cons- the consolation that Jesus brings is God's rest to us in our weariness. God's tenderness to us in our weakness. God's compassion to us in our affliction. God's pardon to us in our sin. God's love to us in our rebellion. That is the consolation that Simeon longed for. And if we're honest with our own hearts, that's the consolation that we long for too. Like what, what is your heart longing for this morning? Are you longing for rest? Are you longing for tenderness? Are you longing for compassion? Are you longing for pardon? Are you longing for love? Simeon found the consolation to all his longings in the newborn face of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures remind us that we too find what we are looking for in the face of Jesus Christ. In fact, um, see if I can find it real quick. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there's this beautiful little line. I, I didn't dog ear this page, Fred. Oh, man, I should have. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 6. For it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what are you longing for today? You can find it in the face of our Savior Jesus. You guys still with me? Okay, uh, let's move on. Third, third and last kind of main point here. I, I, I want to show you a painful promise. So we've seen a joyful sacrifice. We've seen a hopeful longing and now a painful promise. Verse 33, his father and his mother, 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 his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, they marveled. Think about it. You, you heard last week Mary's song, right? The angels revealing to Mary who this child is going to be. You'll, you'll hear other confirmations uh, in the coming weeks. We know the angels uh, confirm it. We know the shepherds confirm it. We know that Elizabeth confirms these things. And now, here they are, at the very moment that they're at the temple to present their child to the Lord, this old man confirms it as well. And it had to stir awe and wonder in them at this little, you know, six to eight pound lump of flesh. Like, he is the fulfillment of all of these promises. How can it be? But then there's this painful promise. He is appointed for the rise and the fall of many. And a sword will pierce your own soul also. Now, there's no way they could have known at the time what that meant. No way. But as much as Jesus' arrival met comfort and consolation, 
It also meant conflict. I think that gets lost sometimes in the sentimentality of Christmas, you know? Uh, Peace on earth and mercy mild, right? Sure, but Jesus himself also said, I've come not to bring peace but a sword, to bring division. In other words, when we encounter the real Jesus, we cannot stay neutral. We will either love him and worship him or we will despise him and reject him. Those are the only two options. No one encounters the real Jesus and just goes, eh. It's impossible. You haven't encountered the real Jesus if your response is, eh. So when that day comes, you will either fall down at his feet and worship him and love him or you will despise him and reject him. That's what's meant in the text when it says the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. What what he's getting at is what will be revealed is what we believe about our own hearts. How we perceive ourselves. So in the Gospels, Jesus largely dealt with two groups of people. He dealt with the unrighteous and he dealt with the self-righteous. Now the unrighteous, they know it. Like, you don't have to remind them of their failures and their rebellion. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily repentant, but they're at least honest about it. Yes, I'm unrighteous, right? There's no arguing. There's no, you know, trying to justify. They know it. Unrighteous people know they're unrighteous. Self-righteous people, on the other hand, are a little bit more difficult. Because what they try to do is justify themselves. Prove their worth lean on their obedience and their external behavior to show that they are indeed righteous and worthy. But the Bible reminds us over and over and over again that the only kind of righteousness that is acceptable to God is a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, right, became sin for us so that we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God. That is the only kind of righteousness that that God accepts. It is a righteousness that comes to us from God by faith. And even the faith to believe is a gift to us. It's as the Holy Spirit of God reveals to us our deep, deep, deep need for a Savior. Whether we are very, very bad or very, very good externally. It's the Spirit that reveals our deep need. And it's the Spirit that also reminds us of Jesus' absolute readiness to save us, to forgive us, to be present with us. So real Christianity is real-time dependence on Jesus for more and more and more and more grace. That's what it is. And to some, the message of Jesus is the aroma of life, and to others, it's the stench of death. So think about Jesus... John 1 says he came to his own and his own people rejected him. Think about one of his best friends, Judas, who betrayed him. Think about all his disciples who abandoned him and forsook him. You think about Jesus, wrongly accused, convicted in a sham trial, beaten, mocked, spit upon, shamed, nailed to a Roman execution cross, 
to die. And the scriptures remind us that Jesus stayed on the cross because he loves us. 1 John chapter 4, let me just read you one verse. It says, Oh, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, uh, but he loved us. In this is love that was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved him, but he, made, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is just a $5 theological word that means that God, uh, Jesus took the wrath of God that's rightly due to all sinners, absorbed it, and turned it into God's favor towards you and me. And who was standing right beside Jesus at the moment he took his last breath? Mary, his mother. Mary had, for Jesus' entire life, been pondering in her heart, as we saw last week, those truths that had been revealed to her about her son. And all of a sudden, as she looks at her adult son nailed to a cross, gasping for air, she realizes that painful promise from that old man at the temple starts to come to reality. A sword is piercing her own soul. This has to be the darkest moment of Mary's entire life, and yet it is the moment that God ordained to bring salvation and joy to the world. Like all this pain and suffering is going to bring about an eternal consolation. So what's happening in our text right here in Luke 2? Rewind with me, okay, from the crucifixion of Jesus all the way back to Luke 2. As Mary and Joseph, these poor parents, are, who, who, who are bringing doves with them because they can't afford a lamb, as they're walking into the temple with their infant Jesus, they actually are bringing a lamb into the temple. John the Baptist would later call him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the spotless lamb who lived a life that none of us could live, perfect, holy, righteous in every single way, tempted to sin as we are, but without sin. And he lived a life of righteousness in our place because we couldn't. The book of Isaiah says that Jesus was led to the slaughter like a lamb. He opened not his mouth, but he suffered and he died in our place and he took the wounds that would bring our healing on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, conquering our enemies of Satan, sin, death, and hell so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be welcomed into the family of God, so that we could be part of this thing called the kingdom. And then you go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 7, and John's vision of heaven is that he sees the lamb seated on the throne. The lamb that was slain is now ruling and reigning and worshiped by all the hosts of heaven. So it's through Jesus' suffering that we find consolation because he loves us. So that raises a question, right? How do we respond to this? As we see this story in, in, in Luke, one that probably in your Bible reading plans you've just read right by. 
because it doesn't seem all that significant, and yet it's completely profound as we think about what it means for the whole gospel. How do we even respond? I think we commemorate the first arrival of Jesus. We celebrate, we, we think on it, we ponder it, all that it meant that Jesus would come into the world to save us, and we long for, we hopefully long for that second arrival of Jesus when he will come to do away with sin and injustice and death and sickness and pain and wipe away every tear from every eye and make all things new. So we worship him. We devote ourselves to him. We meet with him. I want to close with a a quote from uh, one of my favorite preachers, uh, Charles Spurgeon. He was a 19th century London Baptist preacher. And um, Just phenomenal. God's hand was clearly on this man. But I I want to just read this for you. You can close your eyes if you want to listen to it. Uh, But but this this is how we respond. Christian, here is joy for you. You have looked and you have seen the Lamb. Through your tears, your eyes have seen the Lamb of God taking away your sins. Rejoice! In a little while, when your eyes shall have been wiped from tears, you will see the same lamb exalted on his throne. It is the joy of your heart to hold daily fellowship with Jesus. You will have the same joy to a higher degree in heaven. You will enjoy the constant vision of his presence, and you will dwell with him forever. Why, that lamb is heaven itself, for heaven is. And Christ are the same thing. To be with Christ is to be in heaven. And to be in heaven is to be with Christ. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful uh, for your presence with us here this morning. I'm grateful for uh, just your word and how profound it is if we will take the time to study, to read, and to ask and to allow your spirit to minister to us through it. Grateful for these men and women, the the body of Christ at Fellowship Asheville, and for their invitation to speak today. I pray that it has been a blessing that you've met with us here, and that we'd be transformed as we think about what Advent really means, what it means that Christ came, took on flesh and blood, and dwelt among us. Help us, Lord, to keep that in our minds, and to be like Simeon, men and women who pursue righteousness, who are devout, who are led by your Spirit, and who are longing with hope for you to come again. We love you, and Lord, as we respond to you now in song, we pray that you would be honored and glorified and that you'd fill us with joy in your presence. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.